episode 390, boy, we're getting close to 400, of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, where we're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we're going to express here don't reflect those of our firms, institutions, clients, friends, family, to the extent we still have friends and family, uh, or, or even our pets. We're going to be doing an interview today uh, for the first time in a while with one of the most famous and controversial face recognition firms on the planet, which is to say Clearview AI. And the CEO, uh, Juan Tontat, uh, will be joining us after the news roundup. But for the news roundup, we have David Chris, founder of Culper Partners, Nick Weaver from the computer science department at Berkeley, Michael Weiner, uh, who is a Steptoe partner who comes on the show whenever we have antitrust cases that we don't understand. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Let's jump right in. We can't start without a nod to the possibility of cyber war. Uh, David, things are looking really tense in Ukraine and uh, it's looking tense on some of the cyber infrastructure of the Ukraine. What's going on and how seriously should we take it? Well, obviously to start with context, we do have what Microsoft in its blog rather delicately called the geopolitical situation in the Ukraine, with which I'm sure all of our listeners are familiar. The cyber aspect to this has two main strands neither of which I think has been formally attributed, but people have their suspicions. The first strand is defacement of a whole bunch of Ukrainian government public-facing websites, which was obviously visible to anybody who tried to visit those websites. And the second strand is the implantation of some malware on Ukrainian government networks and the networks of companies that work with the government that was revealed by Microsoft in the blog that, as I said, referred to the geopolitical situation for context. So running through it pretty quickly as to the defacement last Thursday and Friday, I guess around 70 Ukrainian government public facing websites were defaced. And there were some DDoS attacks as well, I think, on some of those websites. The defacement said things like, be afraid and all your data have been uploaded. And they were written in a combination of Ukrainian, Russian and Polish. And there's been some speculation that it was a false flag operation, an effort to blame the Poles. There was apparently Polish metadata in some of the defacement images. But the use of Polish language suggested that it was uh, run through Google Translate. So maybe not Polish people. And some people think that these defacements were done by Belarusians. This was so pitiful that they, <laughs> the only thing it lacked was a guy with his pinky in his cheek saying, and it'll be one million dollars if you don't right. comply. <laughs> so, and let me just say, I'm very grateful to several folks on the uh, internets who have published good accounts, including someone named Kim Zetter, who did a very good synthetic account and, and whose work I'm borrowing here, along with that of several others to give you the She, she the is very good. I've tried to get her to come on and, and appear on the program, uh, and she's trying to decide whether she wants to do that. So if you know her, well, encourage I don't, her to come but I, but I like the synthetic uh, account she did and, and I'm borrowing from it and some other things that folks have posted. And, you know, we're still learning the facts. So probably a good deal of what I say will turn out to be wrong, but this is the latest we know. So some of these defacements actually may have been accomplished by hacking into a Ukrainian company that's known as Kitsoft that apparently manages a bunch of these websites. So if you could get administrator level access there, you could, you know, 
mess around with all these websites pretty quickly. The defacements said, oh, your data has been stolen. The government said, the Ukrainian government said, no, that's not true. The second strand may be related to that, and that is uh, over the weekend, the Mystic unit at Microsoft, that's the Threat Intelligence Center at Microsoft, they published a blog explaining that around the same time last Thursday, malware that Microsoft has called Whispergate pretty cool name, has been found on the networks of some Ukrainian government outfits and some affiliated companies, possibly including Kitsoft, although they didn't name Kitsoft. And it looks like ransomware, this malware. It's kind of maybe like NotPetya in that respect. But it actually overwrites or wipes out the critical data or the critical elements of the systems that contain data to make them inoperable. So I guess even if you pay the ransom, you're not getting your data back if this thing performs its wiping operation on you. So this is not just defacement of a public-facing website. This is you know, potentially very, very damaging. You can find accounts of how this malware works online, but it's you know got a multiple stage process in which the initial payload, I think, phones out to a, a website, downloads more, and when you turn off the system and it reboots, that's when it destroys some files that are necessary to boot it up. So I'm sure Nick could provide more technical details, and as I said, you can read about them. But if it works, I guess it pretty much destroys the data on that system. It's hard to tell, at least from my reading of the Microsoft blog, whether and to what extent this malware worked or whether it was caught and, and stopped. They're probably continuing their damage assessment. Even U as Ukraine is saying not, really. That sounds yeah. like... Uh, you know... Uh, and you would think we'd know, right? If they had stolen the data, then we'd start to see it. If uh, we might start um, to they see had it, wiped yeah. it, we would start to see some failures in uh, Ukrainian IT. Yeah. Some I, folks I, are speculating that these two things were connected, by the way. I mean, uh, duh, right? At some level, they both occurred at the same moment. And, and again, that sort of particular geopolitical context. But if so, it maybe didn't work so well because the defacements promised something that the ghostwriter malware had not yet accomplished, maybe won't accomplish at all. So it didn't quite work out if that's what was intended here. And it, I'm not sure it has disabled the Ukrainians from responding to Russian kinetic aggression if that's what's in the offing, which obviously many people think is the case. But so the threat is not written. as big the threat's a deal there, as, right? as one thought. Yeah, but it is it, a, it, it, it is it, a it, saber rattling at a minimum. Yes. And it's worth remembering that in 1939, the first six months of 19 declarations of war in August of 39, people started calling it the phony war or a sitzkrieg. Nobody was doing anything. Turned out that was not exactly how it turned it worked. No. For even <laughs> So let's not rush to judgment about whether this was a ham-handed failure or uh, something. Yeah, the prelude um, to something bigger. Yeah, exactly. For sure. Exactly. Okay, uh, we have promised for a while that we would uh, uh, do a review of the competition law cases floating out there. And frankly, there were developments in four or five of them uh, just this last week. So I'm going to see if we can get Michael to, to give us a tour of four or five cases and decisions and developments so that we get a feel for which cases are moving forward and which are not. Let me start you out. The FTC has been struggling to get past the motion to dismiss with its case against Facebook, and they finally did it. The question is, what did they have to give up to get there? 
So they were dismissed uh, because they failed to plausibly, plausibly allege that Facebook had monopoly power in the market for personal social networking services. And what did they do? They came up with some Comscore data. No big surprise. They, they cited monthly average users and daily average users and time spent on the site. And that was enough to plausibly allege that Facebook had monopoly power because their share was at least 70 percent since 2016. I don't know why they didn't do that in the first draft, but in the first filed complaint, but they've done that now. And they've also alleged that uh, Facebook's monopoly power is protected by barriers to entry, um, network effects, switching barriers, and that Facebook willfully maintained that monopoly power through anti-competitive conduct. What was that? Acquiring Instagram and WhatsApp. The judge did narrow the case somewhat by dismissing uh, or continuing to dismiss the FTC claims that Facebook exercised monopoly power by refusing to let other sites interoperate with Facebook, like providing API access to competitors. And that's because FTC's jurisdiction in federal court is limited to conduct that's ongoing or threatened in the future, and Facebook had ceased that conduct. And the court also declined to recuse FTC Chairman Khan on the basis that she had prejudged the case because the judge pointed out that, hey, she's not the judge here. She's the prosecutor. She's entitled to have views. That's probably why she has the position of being FTC chair. So the yeah, case I think that, that actually that sort of makes sense. I thought it was re- what was interesting is they have defined the market. So, of course, Facebook is the biggest player. It, the, the market apparently consists of Facebook, WhatsApp, and Instagram, and it leaves out everybody else who would seem to be at least as close to Facebook's business as Instagram. Are they going to end up regretting the tension between their effort to drag these guys in as part of the market and their effort to show monopolization by excluding everybody they, that Facebook competes with? I think that's still going to be the hard part of the case. That's what I said the first time that we talked about this case when it was first filed. I mean, the, the allegations that TikTok does not compete with Facebook, I find that hard to believe. And Twitter and YouTube and LinkedIn and Spotify. And, and yeah, WhatsApp is not even in the market that they allege, you know, although they allege that Facebook violated the law by acquiring WhatsApp. So that's still a, they still have a long ways to go in this case. The thing that that bothers me about this is they're they're going for the headlines because everybody knows that Facebook is a, is dominant in a sort of network effects way, at least as as to uh, what they provide. But the they're doing that in order to make a boatload of money by dominating mobile advertising, and uh, there I think the FTC has kind of missed the boat that the. Ad tech and uh, ad monopolization is a much more attractive economic uh, theory. It's just that it doesn't get you the headlines. Uh, that makes sense. Okay. Well, speaking, of, we're going to come back to the ad tech stuff, but the states are also struggling with the, their Facebook claim. And frankly, they sound like they're even further at sea than the FTC. Well, they were dismissed outright the first time, really on, on two bases. One, Latches, they sat on their rights. They should have filed this case uh, sooner. Uh, they just filed this week their appellate brief in the uh, D.C. Circuit to try to get back in the hunt. And their argument is that Latches doesn't apply to us. We're, we're a, a sovereign state. 
And even if it did, you, you sh- the court should have given us more deference. And that's basically the, the main point of the argument. It's just a legal question. We'll see. They don't have the same 13B issue that the FTC has. They can allege conduct in the past and still get an injunctive relief. But you know, it, it's, it is just purely a legal issue. We'll see where they are. Frankly, I wouldn't bet against the, the states getting back in the Facebook game. You don't find very many first-round dismissals with, uh, without leave to replete. That's what they faced here. Okay, so nobody's done beating up Facebook. They found a new thing to beat them up with. Both the FTC and the states are going after Facebook for monopolization of the virtual reality market on behalf of Oculus, a a market that scarcely exists. I guess it does exist. But the theory here presumably is we were too slow off the mark with WhatsApp and Instagram, and this time you're not going to catch a sleeping Facebook. We're going to uh, uh, sue you before consumers have really even heard of the market. Yeah, and the, the investigation sounds very familiar. It sounds like everything else that's going on. So Oculus headsets make up about uh, 75% of global shipments of virtual reality headsets in Q1 2021, according to the complaint. And the investigation seems to focus on whether the Oculus App Store discriminates against third parties selling apps that compete with with Meta's own software. In other words, so self-referencing a, 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 a theory that is sweeping the world. Right. So first it was Alphabet, Google, then it was Amazon, and, and now it's it's Oculus. And second, uh, users can download apps from both Meta and third-party developers th- through the Oculus Quest Store. But if they do so, then Oculus takes a 30% cut. So that's taken a page from the Apple as well as the Alphabet playbook. And developers claim that Meta is using its its market power to hurt companies that offer competing games uh, and services on, on Oculus. They they copy the most promising ideas. They make it harder for for third-party apps to work on the platform. This stuff all sounds familiar. So uh, yeah, no, and no it, it, it sounded yet. familiar in 1994 when people said it about Microsoft. It, it's the problem of platforms, which are wonderful freeing opportunities for people to uh, kind of break old market structures and offer new competition. All the people who are on the platform are a brand new entrance into a new market. And it's very exciting. And it's a public service to make that platform available to them. But it's a public service that comes with the opportunity to engage in self-preferencing and ultimately to squash anybody you want to. You just take over their business by releasing your own app and disfavor theirs. We don't want people to stop building platforms because they really do transform the world. But we resent them as soon as they succeed. Is there a antitrust theory that addresses that? Yeah. Well, the question is, are they foreclosing competition? To what extent can rival networks survive? And that's really what's being tested in, in this investigation, as well as in, in the, uh, the Google case and, and uh, in the investigation of Amazon. So, but I, 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 yeah. I do think, you know, that there's a pretty good argument that in many cases we want one. We don't want four competing platforms where we have to develop products for four different uh, standards run by four different big companies? Is there a way that antitrust law, I guess uh, what antitrust law would say is, well, in that case, you find that there's been monopolization. Instead of forcing a breakup, you regulate the ways in which people abuse their, their dominance. These are hard cases because they can be very consumer friendly in the short term. And the question is what happens down the road? 
Okay. All right. Next, uh, this is the one I love. Uh, uh, this is the Texas ad tech case where I think, you know, I have always believed that it, the money that Google and Facebook are running on is from advertising, that the ad tech market is complicated and rife with abuse, I suspect. So going after that, which is what Texas and a small group of states, sort of 15 or so, have done is a really good idea because you're likely to find something. Texas has been releasing a lot of press releases that suggest they're finding stuff. But frankly, my, my big problem here is I don't think 14 state attorneys general doing this part-time or even you know one of them devoting some resources to it can do a case like this really well. So I, I feel like they have a, they caught the bus, but they aren't going to be able to hold on to it. So this case really is much more interesting, I think, than, than the Fed case. And you know, they filed a, a highly redacted uh, complaint, and then there were some leaks, some inadvertent leaks. There were some unredactions. And then this week, uh, the whole thing was unredacted, or virtually the whole thing was unredacted. So what we learned in the unredactions, we learned more about Jedi Blue, and we learned more about Project Bernanke. So Jedi Blue is the alleged deal between Google and Facebook, the number one and two players in online advertising. What we learned in this week's unredactions is that the allegation is that Zuckerberg and Sundar Pichai signed off on the deal that allegedly guaranteed that Facebook would bid in and win a fixed percentage of ad auctions. The uh, allegation and the complaint is that this is price fixing. The companies say, no, 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 this is completely above board and, and, and transparent. Yeah, we'll see. We don't know the facts. Yet. We know the allegations. Um, the interesting stuff that came out on Project Bernanke is, I, I thought was very interesting. These deal with the display auction-driven display advertising business. Google owns the biggest buyer platform, the biggest ad exchange, and the biggest publisher platform. Uh, so Google runs the auction while it represents both the buyers and the sellers. There's an internal Google document um, cited in the complaint. That, says, <laughs> so, yeah. so the, so that is so sweet. That, so I would call it Bernanke, too, because it means you're basically printing the money. <laughs> so the document says, yeah, it's, it's like Goldman Sachs owning the New York Stock Exchange. So in Project Bernanke, so Google runs ad exchange on what's supposed to be a second price auction. And that means that the advertiser who bids the highest actually pays the price that the second highest bidder bids. And that means that bidders uh, are free to, 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 to bid without fear that they're overbidding. And it's a brilliant idea, won a Nobel Prize. But the reality is that, according to the allegation, Google would pay the publisher what the third highest bidder bid, and it would pocket the difference between the second highest bid and the third highest bid and put that into what it called a Bernanke pool. And according to the complaint, Google used the money in that pool to boost bids in ad exchange that would otherwise uh, be lower than bids placed on rival ad exchanges. And maybe that's the Bernanke uh, Bernanke connection. He was an advocate of quantitative uh, easing to, to battle the Great Recession, and this was sort of uh, quantitative easing to favor Google. Um, Google denies that any of this stuff happened. At, at first, Google was apparently or allegedly uh, paying the money back to the publishers, uh, but then it stopped doing that. So that, that we learned that on Bernanke. We also learned about dynamic revenue share. So Advertisers are placing bids on different exchanges, so the winner isn't necessarily the highest bidder, but the highest bidder after you net out the slice that the exchange is going to take. 
So under dynamic revenue share, Google would do just that. It would look at all the bids, it would take up an advanced peak, then it would adjust its commission in order to have the advertiser bidding on adX win the bid. The third uh, game here is revenue price optimization. So publishers get to set a minimum price, which becomes a floor for the ad impression. And, and if the floor in the auction is higher than the second price bid, it becomes the second place bid. And under reserve price optimization, Google was uh, using advertisers' bid history to artificially inflate those price floors. So if you'd bid more in the past, Google squeezed money out of you by ensuring that you were going to pay more in, in the current bid. Google denies all of this, but these allegations are they are very interesting allegations. We'll see where, where Texas and the other 15 or 16 states go with this. So if it doesn't win them a Nobel Prize for economics, it may at least allow them to buy the Nobel Prize uh, because this is a, this sounds like a lot of money sloshing around, you know, extracted from people who don't quite understand that it's coming from them and then is going back in ways that make Google and its ad exchange a lot richer. I, there's something here for sure, but uh, I remain unconvinced that, that Texas can find it. There's a lot of money in Yes. Okay. So last case, we're just about doing this on time. Uh, DOJ still suing Google over search. I, again, I contend kind of the wrong thing, though the obvious one. And they're fighting over what, discovery? Yeah. Which depositions do they get to take? You know, it, it's, it's typical discovery battles. The trial's not going to happen this year, maybe next year. Okay. All right. Thank you, Michael. That that was a forced march through some really important cases, and I feel smarter because of your taking us through them. Let's get Nick to, <clears throat> to take us through the other uh, bit of history, which is the Log4j fallout, which continues weeks after Log4j was disclosed. Uh, Nick, the White House has decided that this is something they should get involved in. And they brought a bunch of big tech companies to talk about open source software security. What came out of it? What came out of it is the question is, is why are they talking to the big tech companies? Because they aren't the necessary issue. So but they've got the monopoly profits to feed back into the open source community to get better security. Except they and won't. Um, <clears throat> Isn't, isn't that really what Google said? Hey, we've got, I don't know what it was, $10 million that we're going to sprinkle over open source security. The thing is, is that's kind of misunderstanding the ecosystem, that they didn't have any of the Log4j developers invited shows just how much the code reuse ecosystem relies on unpaid labor that they don't even bother to include in the discussion. And so, so those people, you know, they had real jobs. They they couldn't leave and just to go to the White House. Uh, or maybe they couldn't afford a ticket. <laughs> couldn't afford a ticket and didn't get an invite. Um, okay. Because that's one of those, they make you an offer you can't refuse kind of thing in the tech world. Yeah. The problem is really our open source model for development is a Charlie Foxtrot. So the idea... So, we, we, we basically, it's everybody should be throwing in their addition to the code and the code will get better. The more people use it, the more people will say, oh, and there's this one little feature I'd like to have and they'll write the code and they'll add it to the library and we'll all get rich together or at least we'll all get better code together. Except and it isn't because that's not quite what has happened. What has happened is the dependency chain nightmare. So 
I do something in my favorite programming language. I want to do something like logging. I, if there's no built-in package in my programming language, say I'm doing it in Java, I'm going to use a third-party package. That third-party package, in this case, is log4j, and suddenly my program is vulnerable when a vulnerability in the downstream package happens. Now, and then when it comes, to, when it comes time to patch it, you can't patch it. You've got to wait for whoever wrote that package to pack, patch it, right? And it gets worse. So let's say I'm now using something that has logging in it. So I'm using a second party package that includes the third party of log4j. And so it's these dependency chains is the fundamental problem with how we build open source software, that my program doesn't just depend on the libraries I include, they depend on the libraries that the libraries that the libraries that the libraries include. And so you have this, this huge this, dependency. So this is where the FTC screwed up with their, uh, you know, bringing the club out of the closet saying, if you don't patch this right away, we've got Equifax and we're going to hammer you. And then everybody discovered, well, that's going to be actually kind of hard to do because I have to wait for somebody to give me a patch and he has to wait for somebody to give him a patch and he has to wait for somebody to give him a patch. And then the patch comes up like a bucket brigade finally to the ultimate user. And that's going to take months. Right. And the other problem that comes in is what if somewhere in your dependency tree, that if you actually draw it out, you don't have a, or you have basically a dependency acyclic graph. So you start at your code, it depends on so many libraries. Each one of those depends on so many libraries. Each one of those depends on so many libraries and so on and so forth. If any one of those libraries has a problem, you potentially have a problem. If any one of those libraries turns malicious, you're up the creek without a paddle. And so the, the JavaScript side community experienced it just this week when a developer of a commonly used utility, colors.js, decided he had enough and was pissed off at the notion of big companies using this indirectly or directly and not supporting him, replaced it with a deliberately broken version. And now all sorts of programs, when they got updated, stopped working. Right, um, although that's, that's more easily solved, right? You just tell him... We're forking off, buddy. Uh, or, no, uh, and the problem it's... is it's not easily solved because he was blatantly malicious. If you're subtly malicious, it becomes a much harder problem. So, yeah. and also it depends on how much money is at stake. That if you're just a little thing, who cares if you're, say, a cryptocurrency wallet, protecting billions of dollars of notional value, the dependency nightmare becomes much more significant. Okay, so quick question. If Google's $10 million or whatever it was they're going to sprinkle on the open source security foundation isn't going to solve the problem, uh, is there a mechanism by which we can at least tag this stuff so we know the source, you know, we have a source, a, a, a basically a software bill of material, so this we is know exactly the point. dependency... Okay. That is exactly the point of the software bill of materials model. 
is that it's designed to it's designed to include this graph of dependencies so that with a proper software bill of materials you'd know that this program's library 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 includes log4j and so the software bill of materials approach at least allows us to detect things but you have to have every open source developer agree to a standard format for maintaining that information so that when dependency piles on dependency, the stuff at the bottom is readable. Fortunately, you don't have to target the developers. You just have to target the uh, package managers and, okay. uh, and programming languages. So for example, with Go, it's easy to create the software bill of materials for a program in Go. It's part of how Go compiles things is it ends up chasing these dependencies and creating them. If you have a Python package in pip, you have the dependent packages listed. Those have the dependent packages, etc. So it isn't a matter of getting all the developers, but really targeting only like NPM, PIP, a few other package managers. And the other problem is making sure that the programming languages have better isolation so that depending on the level of rogueness, you have limits on how much damage can be done. Because like JavaScript has the problem of just entirely one namespace. A good package supporting language like Go you still have to worry about malicious libraries, but you can say more about what a malicious library is limited to doing. All right. David, you are the uh, uh, assigned good news oh, yeah. deliverer. I, I, uh, and it's good news from Russia. I am kind full of, of sunshine and light. Uh, uh, yeah. What happened? So it, it may be <laughs> an interesting <laughs> offset or counterpart to the earlier story I was talking about, about uh, cyber war in the Ukraine and on the border there with some carrots being offered along with some sticks. So on Friday, the Russians arrested some folks from our evil, the ransomware group, one of whom is suspected of the colonial pipeline attack from last May that they did with uh, the dark side outfit. And this was a, apparently a pretty coordinated arrest effort by Russia's FSB, the security service there. They apparently arrested 14 people in 25 locations, and they released some dramatic video, and they got some cash, some fancy cars, some computers and the like. The U.S. government has been, you know, pestering, asking for help from the Russians uh, on this for a long time, I think even including in a call between Biden and Putin. And so the question is why and why now? And, uh, you know, some smart folks, including Dmitry, have suggested that it was sort of meant to offer, as I said, kind of a carrot, meaning if you guys give us some slack and let us invade Ukraine, and then we will help you with ransomware investigations and prosecutions of ransomware actors who have safe haven in Russia. I, I don't know. It, well, are, are you, maybe they should meet on that exactly. bridge over the bay uh, in, in, can, uh, in Berlin, and they can march <laughs> that one guy over, and we'll just send all of <laughs> Ukraine the, across. I mean, <laughs> look, I, I, I don't know. It, I, if that's really what they think, it may be a little bit of a miscalculation. I, I find it hard to believe that as, as 
eager, as enthusiastic as Ann Neuberger and Chris Inglis are to come after ransomware and Jen Easterly too, you know, that they would suggest we we soft pedal our, you know, position on the geopolitical. And I mean, I'm only slightly mischaracterizing or exaggerating the possible Russian thinking here. But anyway, it, it was a ray of sunshine, at least potentially in an otherwise fairly dark and cloudy cyber uh, situation. It may have been a relatively easy giveaway in one sense for the Russians, because I think the US had already learned a good deal about this and who was involved based on some arrests last November. But in any event, you know, it just shows you the many layers of the geopolitical and cyber aspects that uh, characterize today's, you know, relationships between various nation states. Yep. All right. Well, th this is one I'll, uh, you might be interested in this, but let me just lay it out quickly. The European Union continues to drive down a path that is you know, it's the path of least resistance, uh, given what the uh, European Court of Justice has said, basically saying, no, you can't send this data to the United States. No, you can't send that data to the United States. So an Austrian ruling from the Data Protection Authority said that an Austrian website cannot use, this is brought by uh, Schrems, uh, who's brought hundreds of these cases now, attacking only American companies. Apparently, the Chinese companies that export data to uh, China are not a threat to anybody's civil liberties. But they brought a case saying, you can't run Google Analytics on your site because Google Analytics collects data from people who visit your site. They use cookies, they're pseudonymous, but we all know that they're designed to track you even if they don't know your name, they know everything else about you. The court said that's right. And when it gets to the United States, those evil American intelligence agencies, because they know everything, they can put a name on every cookie that Google Analytics collects and therefore it's squarely covered by what the European Court of Justice objected to. And, you know, I'm not going to say that any of that is clearly wrong, but it's bad for European websites who won't get analytics data. It's certainly bad for Google, which is using this free service to, to collect the data that makes its ad uh, business so successful. And it's really bad for American intelligence. Maybe not, I'm guessing that analytics was not a source of a lot of intelligence, but this suggests a root and branch extirpation of data collection from European sites that is going to cause intelligence problems for the United States. And this Austrian court seemed delighted, or the Data Protection Authority just seemed delighted at that idea. Uh, the irony of all this is among the users of Google Analytics was the European Parliament, which got caught by the Data Protection Authority of Europe with Google Analytics on one of the sites that they were using, and they got their um, knuckles wrapped by uh, the Data Protection Authorities. So this is going to be the new enthusiasm, which is killing off Google Analytics and Quite soon, Facebook's various like buttons and the, and the, the like as a way of demonstrating how seriously Europe is taking the, the Schrems II ruling. So it's going to be, you know, a, a long, slow bloodbath for, for American companies and American intelligence over in Europe, I think. And bad news at the end of the day 
for European companies that don't want to do all of this stuff their own, but would ra- on their own, but would rather get some help from companies that can turn the free product into data they can use for ad sales. So that's um, two comments. I, I, yep. I don't think it's actually a very big hit for the NSA because uh, 702 data is not bulk, but specified. Uh, but, so they uh, aren't going you know, to the, lose I, all that much from analytics. I'm, I'm not convinced about that. I think they are going to call it bulk. Uh, um, not not bulk, but they're going to say that it is. It may not be bulk, but it fails the other tests because the European uh, Court of Justice was able to set really, really high standards that no government on the planet has met because they're not allowed to impose those standards on European governments. So they could set a standard for the United States that was completely out of reach. No, uh, what my uh, point is is the courts are go- the European courts are going to say the NSA can do all this stuff. But I think in the end, Fort Meade's going to be like, um, because I don't think the data is all that valuable to them, given the restrictions they have on accessing it. Ah, Um, I I see what you're saying. It was a lot better in the uh, pre-Snowden days when all of it was spread over the wire and you could wrap it with uh, X-Keyscore. But when you're talking 702, this data is not all that useful. The other thing that to watch, and this is going to be the big disruptor, Google Translate buttons. Because mm-hmm. that is a service. Because that's that, a real service. But that's all right. The Europeans can just speak English. It'll be fine. <laughs> okay. All right. So having rolled that grenade under the door, let's turn to secure messaging. I, I thought, Nick, there were two interesting stories here. The UK government is going to actually do a public ad campaign attacking end-to-end encryption and they've got this creepy ad where some kid and some guy are in a kind of fish tank glass cage and the the adult is looking you know suggestively at the child and then the entire fish tank is covered in black so you can't see into it and they and the ad is going to say that's what WhatsApp is doing to our children, uh, more or less. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and Germany, which used to be really big on end-to-end encryption when it was our problem, now is saying we may have to shut down Telegram because people are using the anonymity that Telegram provides, uh, or at least the protection from observation by non-members of your group to send out hate speech. So it it does seem as though this end-to-end encryption is starting to really get under the saddle of Europeans in ways that didn't in the US, but it's the same, you know, different problems being created, but the same solution, which is let's get rid of this end-to-end thing. Um, and it's weird because in Germany, telegraph, telegram groups are really not protected by any serious cryptography. That's why people use it is because it actually works for large groups. And so I suspect in the German case, it's more the German authorities are ticked off with telegram, not upholding legal obligations that they're actually are in a position to uphold given German 
law. Te- technically, they just don't have the resources. I'm willing to bet they're 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 a second. They 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 don't have the ad income, so they're basically living off a much thinner set of revenues. Yeah, but it's the kind of you aren't even bothering to try. Blah blah blah. The UK right. I find more annoying because the problem is that child abuse and the like is a problem, but it's not addressed by blocking end-to-end encryption. That the end-to-end encryption is kind of the last stage on grooming. The the ones that you want to watch out for, the Minecraft servers and stuff like that, how the adults where, where, first Where people are doing their fishing. The yes, and that's in the clear. That's on different third-party services, and the encrypted services don't provide a good framework for that. And the only way you could stop that at the encrypted service level is eliminate all encryption entirely and do bulk surveillance. And they refuse to make the case of, in order to stop this, we want to spy on everybody all the time, always, which is kind of disingenuous. And I well, when, also... the, when the Germans do it, it'll it'll be done right, and we can be confident uh, of that. Uh, speaking but, of which, what, what, while we're beating... But this offends me personally. Let me... This offends okay. me personally because this is also the reason why so many in the security community just dismiss the problem out of hand. They dismiss the problem as one of the four horsemen of the cyberpocalypse. Right. And it's not. This is... Potentially. No, it's a problem, it's, and it's worse than it used to be. So it, yeah. it, it, all the evidence suggests that for a variety of reasons, because of anonymity, because people get attracted to this because of the porn that they can get, the, 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 and the campaigns remarkable like the varieties. Brit- and yeah. campaigns like the British give direct ammunition to groups like Tor, which really do produce a huge amount of problems and totally ignore the collateral damage they're doing. Because... They can say with justification that those who bring up the child abuse problem are being disingenuous because this is the case where they are being grossly disingenuous. This is not. And that's why this so frustrates me is because it means that you can't actually have a serious discussion about these problems with so many people because it's so misused for these stupid campaigns. So speaking of stupid campaigns, and while we're beating up the Germans, how about that contact tracing, repurposing uh, to find witnesses? This is exactly what, again, what the cyber libertarian left said would happen if we had contact tracing, and the Germans doing their best to make it come true. Yep. And this is specifically why the Apple contact tracing, Apple Google protocol, was specifically privacy preserving, was to avoid this. That the Germans rolled out a contact tracing system where basically your phone would register at the location and there would be a recording at least at the location that it was your phone identified as you. And the cops have been now getting this data to track crimes and the like. And... That's just a classic example of mission creep where all the privacy advocates said blah, blah, blah is going to happen, and it happened. 
it did happen. Especially, it's weird because this was apparently some guy who fell down, come walking out of a restaurant, and the German police wanted to find witnesses at the restaurant. You'd think they could go and say, uh, "Could we get your Mastercard receipts for you know between uh, uh, noon and one thirty that that lunch hour?" I'm not sure they had to go to the the contact tracing folks. And didn't I? I maybe I'm remembering this wrong. I thought the Germans ultimately surrendered to Gapel and used their contact tracing, which would mean they couldn't use this data. I'm puzzled by this. Uh, this was a separate app that was not using that protocol. Oh, so which means they won't find very many people. Yeah, okay, sad. All right, two stories to take us out. This one, this is good news in my book. Twitter just got uh, hammered. Uh, uh, those woke colonialist bastards took out President Buhari of Nigeria's uh, tweet, which was, you know, pretty provocative, basically saying if you're trying to sponsor secession from Nigeria, we know how to handle secessionists, and we had a war over it 30, 40 years ago. And Twitter's, you know, the Wokarati said, oh, oh, that's a threat. You can't do that. And they suspended him. <laughs> to which to the government of Nigeria's response was to say, hey, you can't suspend me. I'm suspending you. Uh, and Twitter did not operate in Nigeria for about six months they just finally said, oh, what is it you want? You know, you want a local office? We'll set up a local office so that we always have uh, given you hostages. You want us to pay taxes? Okay, we can pay taxes. You want us to be, quote unquote, sensitive to Nigerian national security, unquote? Uh, we can do that too, which means essentially they have caved on what they did. They've ended up paying a bigger price than they would have if they had just said, you know, that's a different country. And I'm not sure that I'm in the position to say I'm smarter or wiser or better morally than the president of the country. If they had just let it alone, they would be better off. But no, Twitter just keeps sticking its foot in these traps. And God bless them. I'm glad to see them take a hit for it. So that's point one. Point two, I, I think it's really interesting that what we're seeing is serial toxification of various outlets for dissenting opinions. And the one that uh, increasingly the New York Times and the Digerati want to go after is the Cyber Law Podcast. I've finally gotten under their skin, me and Joe Rogan. Uh, and, you uh, wish. They, they, they <laughs> exactly. Uh, All right. Well, I can, I can dream. You're I, vaccinated. <laughs> you're proud to admit you're vaccinated. This is true. You've been trying to avoid the joys of COVID. I don't think you have to worry about being canceled to a more profitable platform by showing oh, crap uh, about uh, how COVID is blah, blah, blah. I think, I think that these things like misinformation about COVID are always applied more aggressively to people who are perceived to be other and on the right. And Rogan, who is not really on the right, but is at least anti-establishment, I think it's fair to say. He's, um, he's, he's not hit. on the right in the same way that Glenn Greenwald is not on the right. Once you right. get frothy enough, it's impossible to tell the difference. Well, it's certainly a pro impossible for Wikipedia, which actually uh, 
designated Glenn Greenwald a right-wing commentator. Well, he uh, has. He is these days. Look at his views. Uh, yes, he's, he's just anti-establishment. Uh, then how come he gave Trump such a incredible deference? You swear they were lovers, and we know Glenn Greenwald's married, so so yes, it would it would be it would be improper of him. Uh, all right. And in any event, uh, the New York Times and a couple of people at Brookings have been saying there's a real problem with misinformation on podcasts and the people who distribute podcasts or who app markets for podcasts need to establish standards and start stamping out this conservative anti-authority speech. And so a bunch of scientists and doctors and, and well, anybody they could find on the street signed a, a call to Spotify to implement a misinformation policy because they thought Joe Rogan had said things that were misinformation about the coronavirus. I, it, it, I, I defy you to find anybody in the last two years who has spoken out on this topic more than 10 times who hasn't been guilty of misinformation. It's just it, it, nobody knows what's true uh, for sure. And we've, we're better off recognizing that and changing our mind from time to time instead of However, saying, well, Stuart, it's this, whatever the right, CDC Stuart, says. Based on that, is, if is, there's a petition correct. to label the Cyber Law podcast as misinformation, I am ready to sign it. And I think Nick is too, and so is Michael. So <laughs> we're going to uh, uh, absolutely. There yes. you go. I, I, I'm going down. I'm going down. I, uh, me and Joe, we're going to go down fighting together. <laughs> because in particular, there's a. We don't know what's right, but there are many cases we know that's flat out wrong. But maybe, but you know, even there, I, when the CDC tells you that masks won't do you any good. And it turns out they, they're saying that not because oh, masks won't do you any good, but wrong because... includes the CDC on multiple issues. Okay. Well then, but but that's the standard that, that Spotify, they're asking Spotify to apply because that's the standard that all of Silicon Valley is applying. You cannot say something that the CDC disagrees with, even though the CDC disagrees with itself regularly. It's And, you know, it is a political organization whose messaging is quite overtly and properly in some respects, political. But to say, well, that's true and everything else is false is it's insane and it's so Stuart, censorship it just, of the worst I mean, not sort. to like actually uh, provoke a and, serious, you know, because is your point that literally in today's world on a whole range of topics or maybe all of them, one just can't tell the difference between fact and non-fact, between truth and lies? I mean, it's sort of an ontological point or is your point more in the policy-based world of uh, censorship is a slippery slope that ends in tears no matter what and we need to just rely on the marketplace of ideas? So Are I'm you not a sure I would or differentiate a, you know, just there. A I, 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 around the use of authority. I, I, I am a skeptic. I uh, there there are many. We learn this lesson over and over again. We think we know what's true. We think we know what science says, and then science surprises us. Life surprises us, and that would argue for being 
pretty cautious about saying, I know what's right and I won't let you say what's wrong. And the CDC standard is just the, the worst of them because it's so obviously incorrect as a matter of you know, truth versus uh, uh, falsehood. But it's, it's always easy to see somebody else's ideological blinders if you don't share them. And that's why the right sees Silicon Valley's ideological blinders much better than Silicon Valley does. And I'm sure... You know, there are, there's a whole cottage industry exposing the ideological blinders on the right, and it's called mainstream media. But I, I, I do think we should always relearn this lesson that you're often wrong even when you're absolutely convinced, emotionally committed to something, and it turns out it's not true. Okay, that ends our news roundup. Thanks, David, Michael, Nick, for given us uh, uh, a great overview. Now our interview with uh, Juan Tuntat, uh, who is the CEO of the most famous, and I have to say, uh, Juan, the most notorious face recognition company on the planet, Clearview AI, but also, in some respects, the most successful American face recognition company, if you judge by what NIST says about face recognition programs. So what I guess I want to ask you for our audience is... uh, uh, what does face recognition software mostly do? What's it mostly used for? And then we'll get into the, some of the controversies. Sure. Thanks, Stuart, for having me on. It's a great honor to be on your podcast, uh, Cyberlaw Podcast. So uh, facial recognition is just a technology. It's been around for, I think, over 20 years, and it's rapidly improved in terms of accuracy, especially over the last three or four years. So we're proud to participate in the NIST study where they ranked 650 algorithms and our overall rank across all categories was number two out of 650 worldwide, the number one being a, a Chinese company. And so just as a technology... Was, was, that, sense, was that sense time? Is that sense time? Yes, sense time is the number one yeah. company. Uh, they just did an IPO, so they're doing very well out of China. But what they use, the facial recognition could be used for many different things. One thing is, you know, unlocking your phone that we're all familiar with. Uh, it can use, be used for identity verification. Uh, our technology is used for law enforcement. And I think that's where some of the concerns are, because is this powerful technology appropriate? What's the right kind of use case? But contrasting how authoritarian regimes have been using facial recognition to how we intend to use it in the United States, it, it, it's vastly different. And I think that's where a lot of the misunderstandings come from. So if you're law enforcement, the best use of this, I would have thought, would be you've got video of the crime and you're trying to figure out who that guy on the video is. And so your software, I assume, runs through millions, hundreds of millions of possibilities and says, we think it's this person, it's one of these five people, something like that. Well, the way we work is in after-the-fact investigations. So if someone in law enforcement is stuck on a crime and all that, the only evidence they have is a photo from the crime scene, which might be from a camera, surveillance camera, or uh, maybe someone who was there, that photo is then fed through our application, which is like a search engine. So you can imagine Google for photos. So instead of putting in text keywords for a suspect, you put in a photo and it returns. Actually, you can that, do that on uh, Google. You can do that. You can do that today on Google. You can Correct. say, I, you can I, do I, reverse like, image search. What, what is yes, this thing that I have a picture though. of? Uh, and, and really, you're a very specialized version of that for faces. 
Correct. So Google has a reverse image search, which will match things. Sometimes when you use it, you can see, oh, it's matching the background or it's matching trees or things like that. We really specialize on faces. So if a face is a slightly different angle or different lighting or, uh, you know, the person's wearing glasses, there's still a very good chance it matches. And to recap with the NIST tests are there's two types of facial rec, one-to-one matching. Are these two photos the same? How accurate you are at that? And there's one-to-end matching. Can you pick this photo out of a gallery of, say, one million um, photos? So NIST tests both, and we did very well in both. And what's interesting when you take a step back is how this impacts, I think, national security of these countries. And it's something that has been more resistant to be adopted, especially in law enforcement in the United States, because we're a different culture. We value a lot of uh, our freedoms and due process. And so the way we look to deploy the technology is in a way that respects all those good things about our society and not in a way that um, threatens our freedoms at all. So uh, uh, there are, as you say, two pretty large use cases for face recognition. And one of them I was intimately familiar with at DHS, uh, Department of Homeland Security, because that's practically the most important technology we had. We were trying to figure out uh, who should we let in, who should we let on a plane, who should we let into the port, who should we let into the country, and we want to make sure we know who they are so that we can use the data that we have assembled about people that we don't want in the country and check to make sure that this isn't one of those people. And in those cases, what you're really doing, I think, is you're comparing a credential against a face. And the credential has a picture on it. So you're basically saying, does the picture on the credential match the face that I am being presented with? Correct. And that's actually, in some respects, an easier task because it's, you know, the, it's, the question is yes or no. And by and large, maybe something that requires less in the way of training than mm-hmm. being able to find the one person in a million or a 10 million who also appears on the crime video. Correct. So I think if you look at the evolution of facial recognition and what's worked, Facebook, I think in 2012, had photo tagging, which they no longer offer. But your accuracy for that has to be maybe one in a, one in a thousand friends when you upload a photo. Is this right. Stuart? Is this whoever it is? And the iPhone, when you're unlocking it, is only one-to-one matching. So when you take and evaluate any technology, you look at what happens in the worst case if the technology gets wrong and what happens in the best case when it gets it right. And so in our investigative forensic case, if there ever is a false positive, which is very rare, even out of billions of photos, there is still an investigator who has to prove out that this person from the surveillance footage is the person online. And they do that in other ways. Perhaps the crime was committed in New York City and the person's profile has a previous arrest in New York City, then they proceed with the investigation. So unlike DNA and unlike fingerprints, it's not used as a sole source of evidence. And when it comes to matching people, in your case, uh, say with DHS, with if there's a flight coming in or something like that, you're maybe one out of 400. So the chances of an error are much, much lower. Yeah, so let's move. I want to come back to the the due process uh, the questions, but let's start with what everybody knows about face recognition. If you ask them what are the policy issues with face recognition, people are going to tell you, well, it's biased. It's biased against women. It's biased against racial minorities. And there was... There were certainly some studies, maybe not the world's best studies, maybe even ideologically motivated studies, that showed that there was, that 
that these tools worked better on white males than they worked on women or in particular African-Americans. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think earlier on in the technology, that might have been the case. But what we see now with the top algorithms on NIST, say the top 20 or 40, there's very minimal racial bias, as they say, between the demographics. And I think one of the found one of the people on this testified to this uh, point. So if you take the worst algorithms, there is much more of a differential. And so what we've done at Clearview is made sure to train from as many examples as possible for every demographic. And the NIST study also breaks down each algorithm by demographic. So our algorithm has over 99% accuracy uh, across all demographics that NIST tests. So I think there's concerns about bias, and I think the technology's gotten there. But there's still other concerns about, you know, police bias and things like that that are still um, under debate. So I, just to try to get down to the numbers, my memory is that even in as recently as 2015-16, the accuracy of these tools was on the order of 89 or 90% for minorities and women and 95% for white males. You know, pretty good, but if you're twice as likely to get it wrong with women or minorities, it raises questions. Now what you're saying, if I hear you right, is that no matter what group you're talking about, this is going to be 99% accurate. Yeah, or more. And that's, if you look at all the top missed algorithms, including ours, ours is a 99% plus across demographic. And the other thing to keep into mind is how hard it is is a search. We have Right now, you can have eyewitness testimony as evidence in court. We're not allowing our facial recognition scores to be even accessible to our end users. So it's never, uh, it should be used as evidence in court. But what's interesting is when you use the technology, you have this kind of wow, magical moment if you see it where you can't really pick a photo out of a million. So in the one out of, um, I think it's a 12 million test by NIST 1 to N for mugshots. Clearview AI gets it correctly 99.85% of the time, I believe. And that's picking one photo out of 12 million, something like that. Wow. Maybe it's 16. I can't remember exactly. And so when you see numbers like that, could you compare that to human performance and expect the same? So that's how the technology has advanced really rapidly. So when you were talking about 2015 or 2016 with those kind of differentials, the technology for facial recognition for the one out of a million search was still not there. Uh, what's happened is with the more data and more training sets and better AI technologies, then it has gotten there. So I think unless you have an identical twin, it can really pick you out of a lineup. And these are photos, uh, when we do it in practice, from different angles, different lighting, uh, different ages. And it's kind of a, an amazing thing because it's gone so far. And I think Again, the concerns around the racial bias, if you look at it from a purely scientific numbers point of view, it's hard to say that it's very negligible, whatever is there. I mean, there's still room for improvement. It's what surprised me is how much better the algorithms can continue to get. So we're excited to continue to improve ours. And I think the other remaining question is, if you live in a world with really accurate facial recognition, does that increase racial bias in policing or decrease it? What kind of implications does it have for society at large? And I think when you go back in history, it's really interesting that people have used fingerprints typically as an identifier over time. Even in the ancient Chinese Silk Road, they used fingerprints to identify who might have you know, prepaid for something. 
on it mm -hmm. and is the same person collecting it because you might have different people there. So they had clay tablets with fingerprints. So that kind of uh, need for corporations and governments to be able to track people is, you know, very important for safety and especially once you're beyond the size of a tribe. And so as an identification technology, I think it's a leap ahead of what came before, which was fingerprints. So what's left, you know, you'll, you'll hear me say this, there's, there's just no doubt that there is a concerted campaign to toxify face recognition and make it the, the technology that can, whose name cannot be spoken and which cannot be used. And the notion is there's some, there's racism in there somewhere. If it's not in the accuracy of the algorithms, then, or if it is, if, if it's, there's still some residual, I mean, you could, you could still be... 99.1% accurate in identifying African Americans and 99.9% .9 accurate in identifying white males. And that is a difference. It's a pretty modest difference, but it's real. So what's, what's left of the concerns that people have? Because there's just no doubt that the reaction people have to face recognition now is to say it's problematic. Yeah, it's a great question. What I've seen over time, having done a lot of media outreach on the issue, is a lot of concerns in 2020, especially. But one crazy event was the Capitol riots from January 6th. And I think a lot of people looked at the same technology in a different way and realized it could be, you know... Because <laughs> they said, this is a really evil technology, but boy, is it great we'll be able to send all those Trumpistas to jail. And they crowdsourced a whole bunch of efforts to find these folks. I, I think the, the story I heard was that Florida, uh, some Florida police departments used your tools to identify a lot of these people. Yeah, Miami police and other departments went on the record and used it right away. It was just a, such a, you know, huge and extreme event. So in events of crises, I think that's when people, you know, are looking for things that can save time or help. So when you think of the Boston Bar Marathon bomber, it took two weeks to identify him. They had a lot of tips come in. They arrested the wrong people a few times. Yeah. And, and this is a situation where they're able to instantly identify uh, a lot of perpetrators. So I think that's gone a large way into acceptance of the technology. People might not like it initially, but then see the upside in when it comes to large, you know, crisis events. So I don't know the answer to this question, but there was at least one woman in Alaska that the FBI showed up thinking she had been uh, in the Capitol on January 6th. And she made a big public deal about how that was completely impossible. And she didn't look anything like the woman whose picture they had and certainly was better dressed. I think it was more or less what she said. Do you remember that? And was that driven by uh, uh, Clearview AI or uh, uh, do you not know the details? We don't know all the details of how they use it. They have multiple investigative methods as well, right? They've used, you know, GPS tracking amongst other tools. So we're not currently aware of any misidentifications or wrongful arrests due to Clearview AI's technology. Yeah. So this is, I want to ask the questions about, go back to this question of what do you do when you find a match if you're a police department? Because of course, it's not like this is technology that is completely impervious to human review. The cop who gets told this is a match can look at it himself and see if it's a if it looks to, like a match to him, and, and then they can do as as you suggested. They can 
take a look at the GPS records and the phone records and the Facebook pages of the people that they think are uh, appropriate suspects and make a determination about whether the facial recognition match is actually plausible in the context of the particular crime they're investigating so that nothing bad needs to happen to anybody except maybe answering a few questions, uh, for, even if the match is wrong. Correct. So I think that's one of the big misunderstandings of it. It's like they see in the movie. It's real time from the camera, and then they got the person and they proceed. In, in reality, there's a lot more to an investigation. You have to collect other evidence. Again, back to that example, the crime was done in New York City, and that's the only clue you had and the online match you found also lives in New York City, you can then proceed with your investigation. You might then find his name, find more photos of him being in New York City, find, find more, and this is all publicly available information, right? Or you might find enough corroborating information to then get a warrant or to get a wiretap or whatever type of investigation it is. So this is done at the very early stages. It's the beginning of an investigation, not the final end of it. And so... I think what we've done is we've ensured that we don't have any percentage accuracy in our user interface. So a cop or an investigator cannot use that as a crutch. 99% of it go. People are notoriously bad with probabilities and numbers, right? Uh, so putting the onus on the investigator is, is one of our important things. And we give them some training about how to use it responsibly. And so that is how we've designed our software to help prevent any misidentifications and misuse of it, yeah. So I, I think I'd like to spend a little bit of time on the legal issues because you've gotten to know a lot of lawyers up close and personal, some of whom are suing you. And I wanted to kind of walk through what the legal issues are that Clearview AI is facing. You've been sued under the Biometric Identification Identifier Protection Act, the BIPA, in Illinois, which says you can't uh, use people's biometrics without their permission. That's a big deal because that's a class action and could cost, uh, I think, a thousand bucks per person. So uh, that could be a very big problem. There are other lawsuits in Vermont and California. You've got data protection charges in Europe and Canada. A, can you give me a sense of where you are legally? Are you going to pull through on this? And what's, without giving away too much, what's your sense about how you will come through all of this? It's a great question. Um, so I cannot talk too much about the legal issues because uh, that's what the lawyers have advised me. But uh, we're going to have it's been an honor to learn from all these lawyers. We've worked with Floyd Abrams, <laughs> Lee Walowski, and we're going to host the world's first ever Lawyer Appreciation Day somewhere, you know, sometime this year as a computer uh, programmer. That's a, that's, a, that's a holiday unknown to the Western world. <laughs> well, for the first time ever. Um, yeah, it's been an honor to learn from them. Uh, I think the legal system we have here um, has a lot of positives to it. It it is slower, but that allows people to take their time to understand the technologies. What I can say about BIPA and other laws is almost all of them have an exception for government usage, government contractor usage, you know, banks and other kinds of security use cases. And so we don't do business in any of the EU countries. We're just doing business in the United States. And I think we get through all these issues. And I think it's partly due to the misunderstanding of the technology. But when it comes down to it, this is something that 
almost every regulation, there's an exception for law enforcement to be able to use this data appropriately to help solve crimes. Otherwise, there's consent-based use cases. And so it's something that affects a lot of companies in the early days. Uh, Or there's First Amendment. I mean, if it's public data, it's a little bit rich to say, I was walking on the street and you took my picture and that's uh, uh, a violation of my rights. Uh, The First Amendment might have something to say about that, notwithstanding that was, in fact, Louis Brandeis's view of the world. Yeah, so there's a lot of rich history to to these debates over time. And I think every time there's a new technology, the debate is reinvigorated in terms of the implications of it. So even in the very beginning, the printing press uh, was controversial, along with, as Floyd Abrams mentioned to me, the Kodak camera, where when Brandeis was alive. That was that was what that was what produced uh, the right to uh, to, to privacy uh, uh, article that uh, Louis Brandeis wrote. Yes, I'm well aware of that, and I used to give a speech in which I said, uh, uh, "Was Brandeis?" a wuss or a snob for saying he objected to having people take his picture. Uh, people I think, think the first amendment cameras too when you think about law enforcement body cameras is something that has added a lot to police accountability. So the implications of each technology are always a little bit different from what people think because we still have to learn from it. So the one of the controversies here that got you started uh, apart from the controversy over your your funders cuz Peter Thiel always sets people off is you gathered this information by essentially scraping uh, a lot of public sites, Facebook uh, among them. And the sites from which you got this information have now said, well, that that's wrong. It shouldn't happen. They've sent you at least some of them cease and desist uh, uh, orders. Uh, is there anything that prevents you from using this data? Obviously, they may not want you to come back and do it again, but is there anything that suggests you can't keep the data that you've collected? Well, when it comes to access of public information on the internet, there's enough precedent when it comes to what they call web scraping. Uh, Google itself is the largest web crawler in the world. They collect public information from all these websites. So we haven't had any follow-up from these companies who've sent cease and desists, and you know we believe it's lawful, and there's enough precedent in the, the Ninth Circuit case, for example, LinkedIn versus Haiq, that you know should allow this to continue, and I yep. think that's just one of the misunderstandings too. It's you know things that are publicly available. Anything that's private, uh, we are just unable to index it or take a look at it. Just like Google, if you type in someone's name and the word LinkedIn or Facebook, and you go to Google Images, there's a good chance there. And these social media sites have the setting with a little checkbox you know, allow me to be listed in search engines. And I think that, but the power is like of of having the ability to index open information has been a huge boon for society. Google's provided tons of value. When I was a kid, that's how I learned how to program. I could go into Google and, you know, figure out a lot of stuff. And so the internet has been fantastic for that. And as technology becomes more People are much more critical of technology, especially recently the big tech companies. And one thing when people think about antitrust and all these things is, do you really want just a few companies who are large kind of controlling access to public information online? And so that's one thing people use web crawling for public data for you know academic research a lot and so many other things that it's going to be, it's going to be something that should continue and will. seems pretty clear that if you... Were in 2010, you would have assumed that face recognition is going to go the way of a lot of other technologies. It's going to be dominated by Google and Facebook and Amazon and Microsoft. Uh, they all had 
face recognition efforts underway that were not cheap. And in some ways, this is you're the beneficiary as well as the victim of the toxification of this technology. Those guys have more or less all bailed out of the market because they don't want to take a risk that someone would call them racist for enabling a technology that has a bad reputation. Yeah, I think it's uh, really unfortunate because these companies have some really great talent. And, you know, throughout the history of the United States, there's always been a good cooperation between the private sector and the government. And that's just not the same anymore. And so you see people pulling out, not just out of facial recognition, but helping anyone in the DOD with image recognition for drones. And it does allow us more market share uh, because it's a controversial thing. But for these large companies, uh, I don't think it's worth it to them at this time to get into this space. However, I just think that facial recognition is a technology that's a nonviolent technology. It's a protective technology. Again, you unlock your phone. Now it's used a lot more for identity checks online at banks. And then the adoption overall has increased a lot. And so it, these are also very, very large companies. And so they always have the time to take those kind of risks. Last set of questions. Uh, you've, you're, you're now in the market. You're making money, some at least. And at the same time, the effort to toxify the technology is resulting in uh, city council after city council passing laws that seem to be designed to prevent face recognition or to discipline in some fashion. There are five states, including Virginia, my state. Virginia said you can't do it without uh, permission. You can't uh, deploy face recognition technology without permission from the state government. A pretty aggressive law. Right, do you think that you have customers in law enforcement agencies that are enthusiastic enough to stand up and lobby the other side of those laws? Yeah, I, we have some customers or just other people in law enforcement who are uh, becoming more proactive and coming to the table when it comes to just educating the city council or maybe it's a legislative branch in a state of how it's actually used. And I think what I found is if you just show up and you explain how it's really used in practice and it becomes more of a debate, then the legislators and others are, you know, pretty smart to figure out, you know, the right kind of controls on it. I'm not against regulation in any way. I think, you know, we started to do a lot more outreach in the state and local area in terms of education because, again, it can be really used to help prevent crimes against children, uh, a lot of murder cases and things like that. So I think as people wake up to uh, the fact that crime is going to be more of a problem. Police have had some defunding uh, recently. They're going to look for tools that allow for more efficiency, right? If your budgets are smaller, you're going to look for tools that might actually decrease bias. So if you're just looking for a description, six foot one, and you have the race of the person and the gender of the person, that's going to result in a lot of unnecessary police interactions, right? If you could use the technology like Clearview to accurately identify someone, that's a way to you know help decrease bias. So I think technology is a really important thing to help police agencies kind of somewhat reinvent themselves when it comes to this new age where there's COVID-19 as well. And so the other thing is a lot of crime now starts online. Human trafficking, gun trafficking, it starts online where and people do post about it publicly. Uh, criminals do. And so the ability to search where a lot of our interactions are now starting the internet and end on the internet is really important, uh, especially for human trafficking. That's something where 
you could have someone listed in an advert for prostitution who are being trafficked and they have the photo, but you can find out their real name. You can find out more about them. That's really helped with a lot of investigators there. And it's been really key. So I think that because we use the internet a lot more than before, it's actually more essential than people realize the ability to search it. Yeah. So I, I think some of those stories are going to turn out to be really satisfying for you and the company uh, and for the police departments that are using your technology. And, and I'm looking forward to hearing some of them as we go forward. Uh, that's Juan Tontat, uh, the CEO of Clearview AI. I have one last question for you. Sure. What the hell happened to your Aussie accent? Well, I've been living in the United States since I was 19. And I moved to San Francisco when I was there. By the time I was about 21 or 22, it wore off. But if I have a few drinks of alcohol, it comes out. So yeah, it's still there in heart. All right. Uh, thanks so much. Very much enjoyed the uh, the discussion. And uh, for our audience, uh, I have a quick question uh, uh, for the audience. You may have noticed that uh, we usually, for years, we only came out on Mondays. And then this month, we haven't had a Monday release yet. And my question for you is, did you notice? Did you care? If you hated the fact that we are not right in your podcast feed every Monday evening, let us know on cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. I'd like to hear because I'm not sure anybody cares that much. If I'm wrong, I'd like to hear it. Thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 390 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Mm-hmm.